to Comic Book Decalogue, a podcast courtesy of the Comics Journal. My name is Greg Hunter, and this program involves a list of ten questions we submit to a different cartoonist each month. Megs Fitzgerald is our guest this time around. Megs is the artist behind the graphic memoirs, Boda Booth and Long Red Hair. If you know her work, you know it's honest, intellectually curious, and impeccably drawn, and I'm excited for you, the listener, to hear this conversation. I sound a little congested on this one, unfortunately, but you know, some things can't wait. People need the information. All the same, I want to thank some fans of the podcast who offered to re-record my parts of the interview. Vin, Sir Ian, John Cena, you guys are true friends, and well, maybe next time, guys. If you're coming to this as a fan of Megs, by the way, and you want to hear more, you can listen to every episode on iTunes in the TCJ Talkies feed or where you found it at tcj.com. And now... Please enjoy 10 Questions with Megs Fitzgerald. How was the rest of your time at Uncle M? Uh, it was great. It was really, really um, like all you could hope for out of a comic book festival and a work trip. It was it was really, really lovely. I, I met some super cool people and... Um, ended up selling out of uh, and which totally surprised me. And yeah, it was just, it was quite magical, actually. Now, were you selling editions uh, exclusively in French for that trip? Yeah, yeah. So I went with my French publisher. Uh, we were lucky that we got a grant from the Canadian government to go. Um, and so it was the first time that I had ever brought my work to Europe. I had never been to Europe before for any kind of book promo stuff before. So I was. Uh, totally like yeah like no expectations like just really didn't know what how i was going to be received all of that um but yeah it went really well there were even people who like came with copies to get signed who had already read the book you know and i was like how do you already have this like and i know my books have been like have been sold for a little while now in france but but i was like i just assume no one knew who i was here so that was very cool yeah that's awesome now, you'd mentioned as we were scheduling this that you had a commitment some nights at a circus school. Uh, and I was wondering before we start the, the top ten list interview, if you'd be willing to say anything about that and how it started. Oh, um, yeah. Well, as a kid, I always did gymnastics and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And um, and I, when my early 20s, I lived in Halifax and did some acrobatics at a circus school there. And then fast forward many years later, um, I had made my first book and had become completely out of shape, as you can probably guess, after like drawing for like 16 hours a day for over a year straight. Mm -hmm. And I was like, maybe I should get back into all that gymnastics-y, circus-y stuff, because it's kind of one of the only sort of athletic-y things that I really enjoyed doing. And yeah, it turns out there was like a circus school right near my house, but they uh, were very, a very small circus school, so they only offered aerial arts. So uh-huh. they had a really high ceiling, um, and but not a big enough footprint, like a big enough floor plan to do acrobatics. So I was like, okay, well, I never thought of myself as an aerialist because um, they're sort of, in my mind, they were like the ballerinas of the circus, and I was mm-hmm. like, I'm not a ballerina. Um, but I tried it, and I loved it i totally fell in love because when you do aerials it's kind of like the sensation of both like swimming like floating in water and climbing a tree up at the same time it's so it's a really cool feeling i love both those sensations so that was about three years ago and i got really hooked and um i'm kind of an obsessive person so i for whatever reason can't just like 
have something as a minor interest or side hobby. I have to like go all in. Um, so yeah, I train like four to five times a week, um, doing mostly trapeze and also some aerial silks now. So that's, it's kind of that's awesome in my life. Yeah. Yeah. And now I'm, um, in much better shape than I was <laughs> after, uh, after my first book, I couldn't do a single push up back then. Mm-hmm. Um, so now I can definitely do that. And then some, well, you sort of anticipated a follow-up question I had. Uh, I was asking partially with a mind toward a book like Photo Booth, uh, where you do take a very deep dive into a subject, uh, you know, into a culture too. And, and in the case of, of both Photo Booths and the circus, you know, a subject that was once more of a fixture in mass culture and has become more of a, a niche thing, even if it still inspires uh, a lot of devotion and the people who engage with it, uh, you know, the circus, of course, uh, that's, that's true of as well. So I wanted to ask if you had uh, an affinity for phenomena like that in general, or, or if I'm putting too fine a point on things. Um, no, I think it's, it's fair to link those things. I, um, one of the things that I really love about the circus is just how long and rich of a history that it has. Um, there's actually a, archive that I'm going to be visiting in Marburg, Germany. Um, it's a private archive of the history of performing circus acts in Europe. Um, and I'm actually going to be visiting that for research purposes, uh, for another project altogether (laughs) for something I'm not ready to talk about yet. But, um, but yeah, like I find it super intriguing. And I think too, what I've realized with doing aerials, especially with trapeze is that, it's just another form of drawing. Um, but instead of drawing with your hand, you're just drawing with your whole body. But the whole thing is the same. It's the same concept um, to me. Like it's, it, it's just like enlarge the whole scale of the canvas that I'm using. It's, uh, and it's really hard. So it's actually, it's fun and challenging in a whole other way where it's like, okay, I'm not that great at this. And <laughs> I think sometimes as an adult, it's really important to put yourself in a position where you like have to learn something new and learn something from scratch. So yeah, it's, it's kind of like learning how to draw all over again, but this time I'm using every part of my body and not just my hand. Does the lack of permanence with the, uh, the drawing, as you put it, ever frustrate you in that respect that when you're drawing with, with a pen and paper, whatever the result, you can rest assured that it will remain on the page. Well, I think right now maybe it's more reassuring than anything because, um, mm-hmm. like I said, I'm not that good yet. <laughs> like I'm good for student level, but um, but I'm definitely not um, anywhere near a professional level. So the fact that uh, that not everything I'm doing is being preserved is is a okay for me right now. But um, but no, I think in general it's it's sometimes healthy to to make a thing that you get to let go of. So it's a good mix between this and actual drawing. Mm -hmm. Now that, that makes me curious also, uh, ordinarily on this podcast, the first thing I ask is what's the last comic you finished reading. Uh, but I, I've been wondering about something slightly different in your case, because you wear a lot of hats as an artist. You've been an improviser, a designer, you went to art school, but not for comics. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, so a few years removed from the release of, uh, long red hair and photo booth, I wanted to know how much you identify with, with comics in general. And and I should say, I don't mean that in a, like a bullshit gatekeeping sort of way, but I'm curious because you have these multiple modes of expression, how you describe your relationship with comics and cartooning, you know, or, Mm -hmm. or if you see these different forms of expression all as, as uh, drawing in a, in a sense. 
Well, I definitely see my career as a graphic novelist as the main thing that I do, um, even though it's actually probably not the main thing I spend my time on. It definitely isn't, actually. It's what I'm doing everything else to serve. So I think like a lot of cartoonists, I actually make my living through illustration work um, and illustrating other people's short comics. So it's kind of funny because those are illustration jobs I wouldn't have if I hadn't made my books. Like Mm -hmm. I I certainly get sought out to do things that are really specifically uh, feminist projects. Um, Last year I illustrated a book on the history of the Canadian suffrage movement and so that, you know, that was something specifically that that publisher had asked me to do because of the work I had done in the past. Um, so in that sense, those are things that are still kind of like tenuously tied to my career as a comic book artist, even though they're not my own works. Um, but really, I'm doing those things at the end of the day so that I can, in the time that I'm not doing those things, write and illustrate books for myself sure. you know, and really actually get to use my full brain. I think that's something that can be kind of frustrating for illustrators sometimes where like, depending on who you're working for, you can sometimes feel like you're just a paid hand and you're like, not that much is being asked of you mentally. And when I'm actually writing my books, I'm working on a new book right now. It's challenging me in a way that is so stimulating. And I, and I feel so alive when I'm doing it because it's actually like a pretty rare mode. I think that, to be in that like most adults probably don't get that experience very often to just like put yourself in a position where you are fully challenging yourself and you're using all of your skills to their maximum ability, you know? So yeah. So yeah, to come back to your question, I definitely identify, I'd say first and foremost as a graphic novelist, even though the majority of my time is actually divided up by, by other things here and there. Mm -hmm. If it were possible, would you be drawing graphic novels full time or is there a you know, a benefit of the side jobs that sometimes those become fodder for the graphic novels oh, at some point? The, the well, so not so much the side jobs, but the side activities become super necessary. Um one of the reasons why I decided to get as involved as I am with the circus is because I just need the the time to move. Like it, mm-hmm. I think people really underestimate how physically challenging it is to sit at a desk for that long, like hunched over a drawing board. Um, and then later to scan those inks in and then sit in front of a computer, you know, um, doing essentially the same thing in a new, slightly new position. So I, my body just fell apart making my first book. I is was actually right? hospitalized. Yeah. I, uh, the day of my first book launch for the book, I called my sister at like 4 a.m. in the morning crying and was like, you need to take me to the hospital because I've been awake all night. Oh, my God. Yeah, and I had had lots of health issues leading up to it, but I literally, every time a health issue just came up, um, all caused by stress, I just like completely ignored it. I was just like, nope, I don't know what that is, so I guess I'll just ignore it. Um I thought I had kept on having food poisoning, but I was actually having what are called gastritis attacks. So it's sort of like an ulcer-like state in your stomach where your stomach lining is starting to like eat itself. Mm-hmm. That's how much <laughs> stress uh, and um, pressure I put on myself for our first book. I, I wasn't socializing. I wasn't exercising. I was not eating right. Uh, my one objective in life was to meet my deadline and I did, but, but everything else had kind of fallen apart. So, um, with my second book, my objective was to like still exercise, still socialize, still eat well. 
Uh, and I did with long red hair. I did all those things, but um, I also delivered the books six months late. Uh-huh. So um, I, I'm really not sure exactly how to strike the, the exact right balance between those things. So all of that to say, I really realized how I have to keep all of my other interests at least somewhat engaged sure. while I'm even working on a book full time like this, because I become pretty miserable and a little bit too hermity um, if I'm only doing one thing. So, uh, do you see the benefits as you draw at this point with, with uh, also leading a more physical lifestyle? Yeah, I do. I think, um, well, in general, obviously, like, I don't need to advertise how great exercise can be for people, <laughs> but um, for sure, mentally, it just kind of check. Um, it is just regularly feeding your body with happy endorphin feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, my new book is also going to be or is on the subject of singlehood, and I look at singlehood through many, many facets, um, and one of which is talking about how you can um, also live a celibate life if you so choose. And so for me, exercising really regularly kind of like fulfills a physical desire that I have Mm -hmm. um, because I'm not choosing to meet that with a partner. So, yeah, not not to make it sound like um, my exercise is at all erotic, if that's not what I mean Uh by that, but like you're (laughs) just by having like, you know, um, that form of physical self-expression on a regular basis, I think it really fulfills like a... A basic need so now it's going to sound like i'm shifting gears now after a, a pregnant pause <laughs> but, but i was <laughs> I, I am obliged to ask the second question uh on the the podcast list which is what cartoonist doesn't get enough praise oh oh um yeah i think probably um uh, Genevieve Castre, she was a Quebec artist who mm-hmm. um, moved to Washington State and um, lives the rest of her life there. And she passed away, I think, almost two years ago now from cancer. Mm-hmm. And everything she made was just so heartfelt and so personal, uh, but really easily easy to identify with. And she's not that widely known. Like the people who know her work really love it, but. Um, she also made music and did a lot of other things. So, you know, comics were not her only thing. So she didn't actually produce that much comic work. And, um, and so, yeah, maybe she's not exactly underrated, but maybe still a little undiscovered in some ways. Yeah. Sure. In terms of work that is of a personal nature, I'm curious with your own work in mind, do you, or have you found yourself looking to other the, the work of other artists that's also, you know, autobiographical or in some other way intensely personal in nature as sort of a map mm-hmm. for how to express uh, what you express in a book like Long Red Hair? Or did you find telling that story that the nature of your own story was was the primary driver of how you told it? Yeah. So in general, I, have, I read a lot of um, nonfiction work, autobiographical work, memoirs. I've just always been more drawn to those subject matters and I actually sometimes have to force myself to read fiction and I'm like, you know, I'm always blown away by the fiction I read, but it's just like not what I naturally go to. Um, I think the two books that probably most influenced my wanting to make long red hair, not exactly how long red hair turned out, but even just the desire to make it is skim by Jillian and Mariko Tamaki, Mm -hmm. um, which is not uh, considered you know, 
autobiographical necessarily. That's not how it's advertised. Um, but certainly it's like a really personal story. And, um, and then Fun Home by Alison Bechdel. Um, so those were books that I read in my early 20s that were just super formative and I think really shaped how I viewed comics in general. And at that time in my life, I had read a bunch of graphic novels before then, but they were not the kind of graphic novels that made me think like, oh man, I want to do this, you know? And then in reading those books, it was like, oh, this is like the power that comics can have. I want to tell stories like this. Um, I think in the actual crafting of my story, I tried to stay really true to what I actually lived. Um, and that made it really tricky to write at times because um, I've done a lot of work with theater and so I'm not trained as a, as a writer, but I would say I'm very thoroughly trained in storytelling and I had to go against a lot of storytelling impulses um, in writing long red hair. Yeah, because I knew it would make for a more interesting story, but I also was like, no, I want to be true to what I actually lived. So, you know, as best as I, I could, I weaved, you know, what I thought would be an interesting um, narrative for the for the reader to follow. But at the same time, it, it's made up of, like, true quiet moments of my life, right? It's not, like, huge twists and turns and massive mm-hmm. climaxes. It's like, okay, this is... a someone's real life experience. And, um, and for a long time, I feared that the book wouldn't be interesting enough maybe for those reasons. But on the other hand, I think it's really important that we tell stories, especially, um, LGBT stories that show all sides of it. You know, not every coming of age queer story is, um, about being thrown out of the house by your parents as a teenager or whatever, you know, like there's, there's a lot more to it than that. So so I think that the, the quietness has its own place, too. Sure. Now, I'm curious, uh, with you mentioning that, how much you've heard back from the people who figure into those stories. And I'm thinking, for instance, in Long Red Hair, of the sleepover scene where you discover that you and a classmate are on very different wavelengths. Do you think that person mm-hmm. is aware of the book? Do you know if they've read it? Um, so she and I are actually Facebook friends, <laughs> though we have not seen each other like since elementary school. And I feel very confident she has not read it. And uh-huh. I think even if she did read it, I don't even know if she would recognize that that was her, aside from her uh-huh. hair color. Because uh, it's so funny that, like, you know, to me, that was a huge moment and that was, like, formative. And it's actually that chapter that I decided to write the whole book around. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, because when I, kind of, I thought of that story and I was like, oh, my God, my whole life can be kind of mapped out from this one story. But to her, she probably doesn't even remember. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it was just another sleepover. She went to a sleepover every weekend. So I'm not too afraid of her reading it. But also in this book, which I didn't do in Photo Booth, um, I changed everybody's oh. names. So it kind of protected people. And I, I also see. changed physical attributes. Um, so aside from, you know, her having long red hair in that chapter, um, everybody else is, is pretty different from who they are in real life. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you the third question on the list now, which is uh, sort of the inverse of the second. What's the most widely loved comic you can't connect with? That I can't connect with? you can't connect with. Oh, people are going to hate me so much for saying (laughs) this. Um, Well, if we're still talking kind of more of the indie comics and like literary genre stuff, um, oh, I can just sort of tell people are going to hate me. I have a really hard time connecting with Chris Ware's work. Uh, 
it just, I can appreciate it very, very much from an aesthetic standpoint, from a design standpoint, but it doesn't draw me in, in this like cozy way where I want to feel like I'm being like wrapped in a blanket when I read a comic. So, yeah. Oh, I understand that. I'm, I'm a big fan of his, uh, I would say, but I do think that there's a backlash is unfair, I think, because I, I think there are you know, very legitimate reasons why a person wouldn't like his work. Um, and I do think people are articulating those more and more. You know, anecdotally, there was a, a recording of this show uh, a couple months back where I had to, I, I ended up editing out, uh, a, a, you know, kind of a long and digressive bit of, of wear bashing, which felt excessive <laughs> after a point. But, but you have like-minded people out there, I think. Okay, yeah, I, I promise no bashing. <laughs> uh, looping back to... Uh, your formative years for a second. Our fourth question is, you can send one comic back in time to yourself at 14. What is that comic? Oh, it probably would be Skim. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think just off the top of my head, maybe if I took a bit longer to think about it, I could like come up with a more strategic answer or something, like if I wanted to change the course of my life or something like that. But um, yeah, I think... Uh, so when I was a teenager... Um, probably up until I was about 16, the only comics I'd really read were like, you know, Archie's and some Marvel comics, much more mainstream stuff. Mm-hmm. And then it wasn't until I was 17 that, um, I read, uh, summer blonde by Adrian Tamine and was like, Oh my God, like that, it really did open my mind quite a bit. Mm-hmm. So I think if I could have read something like that at an earlier age, it would have, you know, I don't know, given me an, an extra boost in the more literary comics world. Now, we've talked a bit about uh, how much you think about other artists when you're making a comic and how much, uh, you know, you consult your own life. Uh, But our fifth question is, how much do you think about readers when you're making a comic? Um, I'd say that, unfortunately, I think about them quite a lot, um, which I think can also kind of riddle you with a lot of self-doubt. So I don't think that that's handy at all. Um, But I think about them a lot in the sense that I'm always trying to, especially because I write nonfiction, I'm always trying to make sure that I've actually presented the information in a way that very clearly progresses, that I haven't missed anything, that it's informative in a way that um, doesn't come off as dry. So I'm really keeping them in mind from that standpoint. And then also just from a more strategic standpoint, like, for example, my next book is going to come out in French and English at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously I live in Quebec, uh, so... There's the Quebec market here, which is is really huge. Comics are very big here. Um, And then now with my publisher having a good connection to France. So in just the writing of this book and the research that I'm choosing to include in it, I'm including a lot of um, Quebec and France content in the research that I'm citing. Um, There's just a lot of like statistics about singlehood that I'm including. So little things like that where it's like, okay, knowing more or less who the reader will be is actually shaping the way that I form it, mm-hmm. um, which I just hope will like lend to the success of the book. But at the same time, I also am only, you know, including facts that feel relevant and important at the same time. I'm not, I'm not pandering to those people, but, um, I'm certainly keeping them in mind. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask with that in mind, uh, your books have a ton of information to convey photo booth, especially. So I wanted to ask if you ever found while you're working that the comics form can be frustrating if there were ever pages when you said to yourself, 
this would be so much easier if I could just write it all out, or if you're so thoroughly a, a visual storyteller that it's it's still you know more intuitive at all points to be communicating with images. Well, it's definitely more intuitive still to to communicate with images. Um, so I don't get frustrated by that, but I do often get frustrated by the fact that like it will take me three seconds to write out what I need to draw on a page, mm-hmm. and then it will take me six hours to draw it. Sure. <laughs> uh, I think a lot of cartoonists sometimes get frustrated by that. Um, and then it takes somebody three seconds to read it, and you're like, no, 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 take more time to read it. <laughs> you have no idea how long it took to draw that. Mm-hmm. But I do get frustrated and sometimes working in nonfiction because there is just so much text content compared to other comic styles. And uh, it's it can be really difficult when you're laying out a page to not bog down the, the reader with just too much text and to not make it too heavy. Um, for sure, Photo Booth has been criticized for that, um, to which I say, you know, it's a book. There's going to be words <laughs> in it. <laughs> like, deal with it. Um, but I, but I understand the criticism at the same time, but I think if if you're writing something that's purely traditionally sequential and using speech bubbles, there's ways that you can cut out so much text, um, and so many captions and just communicate more with expressions and settings and all of that. But when you're actually trying to convey, like in 1962, this thing happened, Mm -hmm. you just need to use words to get that specificity across, right? So that's a that's a, a constant um, tug of war, I feel, when I'm writing the comics. It's just like, I don't want to make it too text-heavy. I don't want to load it down, but there's just some real specifics that I want to actually get this across. It, it's It's got to be through words. Yeah. And another question about readers for you. Being a memoirist, I wanted to ask also what it's like meeting readers who've read so much about your life. You know, um, Long Red Hair, obviously, is a a thoroughly personal book, but even Photo Booth with, uh, you know, Photo Booths as their main subject shares a lot about your life. So when you're meeting strangers who know you through your work, um, is it weird at times? Do you ever feel like they have you at something of a disadvantage? Um, So for... First off, it's always amazing to meet people who've actually read your book. It's, it feels so nice um, because they've just spent all this time with something that you've created, and so they feel like they know you. And even though you don't know them, like there is a real connection there. I feel. Um, and so, yeah, getting to say like talk to an English classroom where all the students have read your book is a very cool feeling. Um, there are times where it is it does cross a little bit more into the weird realm, mm-hmm. and I'd say that that has actually been that's happened a lot more with Photo Booth, perhaps because it's a longer book, so people are spending more time with quote unquote me sure. in, in reading it. And I think because I my obsessive nature is like on full blast <laughs> with that book, that um, it kind of rubs off on readers in in a way. I, I've gotten that feedback that like people get really kind of like. I don't really passionate and obsessive themselves. And I, I feel like people have kind of on the rare occasion, like crossed the line a little bit with like, um, just the, how much they feel that they may know me. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of that, what is like permissive to do to somebody. So I, I, I definitely do think that if you have read either of my books, you do genuinely know me. Like it's a really honest portrayal of myself, but I also think some readers have to keep in mind that, um, they are still a complete stranger to me. Yeah. Uh, I think with long red hair, the reaction's really been different because it's, um, a bit more of a quieter book and the type of people who 
have read it and that connect to it are my type of people. You know what I mean? Whereas Mm -hmm. like photo booth has a much wider appeal in some ways, but long red hair tends to be like the people who usually come up at conventions and stuff who are like teary eyed and want to get like a tattered Uh copy there (laughs) times over like signed, like we get each other. So, um, that's never been weird. That's always just like made me cry back. You know, like, uh, that's when it feels like, Oh, it made sense to make this book because like it had this much impact on someone else. So, Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, and it's it's kind of funny because like long red hair has more like sexually themed content in it, but no one has ever like it's ever elicited like a creepy sexual response in anyone. Uh-huh. Like I've never been hit on in the context of having made that book. Whereas like photo booth, you know, still from time to time I get like really um, weird emails from that book where I'm just like, mm, I could have done without this, you know? Yeah, yeah. Do you think it's uh, like a clarion call for obsessives? Just a book about such a deep dive into a subject i think so i think people also may see that like in the book i'm a very open-minded person and that i'm traveling and i'm up to new experience up for new experiences all the time and so they're like oh if i reach out to her and offer to fly her to new york so i can take her for dinner she'll say yes and i'm like no you're Uh a stranger (laughs) like i'm not gonna do that you know so there's uh yeah, there's sort of a fine line there. Yeah, it's bizarre that, you know, they must not have read the Italy scene uh, very yeah. carefully. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, our, our sixth question is, what's the closest you've come to quitting cartooning? Uh, if, oh, God. if indeed that applies. Um, so I don't think I've ever come, like, full on, like, I'm going to quit this. But I have definitely, definitely become, like, really, really discouraged at times. And I think this probably goes for, like, all cartoonists where the discouragement is based around financial stuff because mm-hmm. it is just so hard to make a living doing this. The sheer number of hours that need to go into it for the small bits of compensation that are usually available here and there, like it just makes it so difficult. Um, I went into debt making both of my books and a lot of debt making photo booth, even though I received a grant to make it, I just like went way over time on that project. Um, so in some ways I don't mind having done that because the making those books are sort of like the foundation that I have built the rest of my career upon. Um, you know, I really see that debt as an investment, but at the same time I'm like still paying that debt off as a cartoonist and you're like, Oh, this is slow going. Right. So I think that that is just the hardest part where uh, a couple of years ago I applied for a, a major grant in Canada. I'm, you know, obviously really lucky that there, that there are such grants. Um, and I didn't get it. And that was like really quite devastating um, because I, I just knew that that project couldn't happen without that funding. Mm-hmm. You just can't take like a whole year of your life off to draw and earn no money at that time. So yeah, it kind of forces you to, to reevaluate your decisions when all your friends are like buying houses and having babies. And you're mm-hmm. like, I have to find a way to support myself or I'd make a new book for the next two years. You know? Yeah. That that's, that's probably the main thing at this stage. Mm-hmm. And our seventh question is, what's the best advice you've heard about making comics? Ooh, I probably have like notebooks full. Whenever I go to um, any kind of festival, I always go to panels and take tons of notes. Just trying to think off the top of my head here. Hmm. Yeah, I kind of want to say something like really um, (laughs) not all that... uh, not all that profound, but like something really specific, like um, 
Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's not really that great of advice, but I remember in the moment it like blew everybody's mind. Okay. Because I can't think of anything that's like deeply profound in terms of comics advice I've been given. Um, I'll just say this, that, uh, a couple years ago at TCAF, they have, um, before TCAF actually starts, they have the word balloon Academy and Dustin Harbin was, um, doing a demo of like how to hand letter comics Mm-hmm. And he pulled out his uh, Ames lettering guide. And I have owned an Ames lettering guide for a long time. I just bought it as like, oh, you're supposed to have this when you make comics. But like never used it. And when he used it, everyone in the audience gasped because everybody <laughs> realized that they had been using it wrong this whole time. I mean, I was like, me too. I was just like, oh, my God. That's why I was like, this isn't that useful. You have to do all these silly dots. And it's like, no, you use it by sliding it along a ruler. Anyway, that's going to make me sound really stupid to some people who, like, probably um, knew that already. But but I'd say, like, half the people on this audience gasped. Uh-huh. It was in front of them. Yeah, it was solid advice. <laughs> now, with our, our next question, we've talked a bit already about uh, – exercise and uh, the lack thereof. Uh, so let me know if this is redundant with, with that. But the eighth question we ask is, what's the worst decision you've made as a cartoonist? Oh, um, hmm. That's tough to say because I definitely have made some bad decisions, but I don't really regret any of them. I think, um, yeah, to get really real for a moment, mm-hmm. I uh, this happened a couple of years ago. I um, posted on Facebook like a very public emotional thing about uh, what my royalties for the year were and how completely difficult it was to be a comic artist when like from the outside perspective, people view you as successful and doing well and you're getting exposure and all this and all that. Um, But the reality is, is that you have this very, very modest check to, to reflect the years of work that you've put into it. Mm-hmm. And um, I never mentioned my, my publisher in the post. I have a very good relationship with both my publishers. And so, and I also receive like the highest percentage of royalties that you can receive. So it really was not about my publisher at all in any means at all. It was just, it's really just about how this industry is set up and how we value artists in this world, period. Um, but I got like that post created so much, <laughs> so much of a flurry and I I definitely would go back in time and rewrite it to make it clear that that this was not like my publisher was scamming me. I did write immediately a follow-up post when people like mm-hmm. were livid that my, my royalties were so low and I was like, no, 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 this is just the reality for everyone and um, you know, a lot of um, authors in general, whether they're comic authors or not, they, they never earn back their advances, you know, they never see royalties. Right. So um I got tons of messages from cartoonists who like thanked me for just being transparent because I don't think it helps anyone in the industry when you're really um, opaque with that stuff. And I think when you try to keep things opaque, it kind of like just leads to more, like more people being swindled and more people um, being taken advantage of, you know, you hear of these really big publishers, um, like big publishing houses who, you know, own the rights to all of these big properties, paying artists like really, really measly paid rates. Um, I did some work for a company like that and I, it just made me feel awful. Um, so yeah, some cartoons really appreciate it. And then I had a couple publishers, not my own, um, but other publishers 
really slapped me on the wrist for it. And they kind of said like, how dare you, you know, speak publicly this way about our industry. Really? So, yeah. And I'm, I've, I'm, uh, there's still, I think there's still some people who are upset with me about that, even though I think that was, yeah, two or three years ago now. So I probably could have played my cards better there. <laughs> I probably could have uh, waited to be a little bit less emotional before I hit post on Facebook. But I think about that a lot, um, especially nowadays as, as more and more people are fighting for their rights and more and more people are feeling more comfortable about speaking out about things. Cause, um, yeah, it, it, it's a, it's a big issue. And, and I could tell from the amount of response I got from, from other cartoonists that it meant a lot to them too. Now with the publishers that scolded you, were these, uh, people you had, uh, you know, a line of communication with because of the possibility of future projects or were they just following no, you on Facebook? Just, that part uh, is very strange to me that they would. Yeah. So, like I, I'm friends with so many people from the comic book industry on Facebook and, and, and we're just, you know, friends in real life. Cause you end up going to so many festivals together every year and people get, you know, dinners together before events and drinks after the events and all those things. Right. So these are people who work in the industry who had considered real friends, um, who just really thought it, it was like deeply offensive to criticize that system. Um, I think now then, but even way more so now it's becoming clear, like that system, that this old, old model, like this publishing model has been around for 400 years and hasn't changed much, you know, and the rest of the world has changed a lot in 400 years. Um, it's becoming so clear now that it doesn't really work for people. And that's why all these like alternative models with self-publishing and kickstarting books and all of this other stuff has come up. Right. So I mean, no disrespect to people who, have master's degrees in publishing and that sort of thing. Um, but just speaking from the artist's perspective, it, uh, I, I think we need to, we need to kind of start saying like, look, this is not sustainable to, to live this way. So we need to find a way to like better compensate people for the amount of time it takes to, to make a comic. Let me ask you our ninth question. Now, uh, what work from another medium has influenced you the most? Hmm. Um, well, I think in terms of influencing my actual writing style, I, um, minored in art history, uh, when I was in university and I actually thought that I would become an art historian. My, my plan was to pursue a master's and eventually a PhD and like to teach art history. Um, and, and that didn't happen because like of a, a bad breakup that instead like you know, put me in this funny whirlwind of a life where instead I was doing improv and, you know, collecting photos with pictures around the world. Um, but for sure, I think the approach that I have to research and, um, even my writing style comes a lot from sort of mentally preparing myself to be an art historian. So in general, I, th I think like looking at art critically, just critical theory in general and applying that to, to my writing. This has probably been the, the biggest influence. All right. This is our 10th and final question. Aliens have made contact with earth and they seem benevolent, but we still want to make a good impression. You've been selected to introduce them to comics. What do you show them first? I don't know why, but my first thought was to show them like Charlie Brown, <laughs> just because it seems real straightforward. But I think that, um, I mean, if I want to take a step back and evaluate myself, I'm like, oh, that's kind of problematic that I, the first thing I would show them would be like a narrative about a white boy, because that is not reflective of Earth. So 
if I really wanted to kind of give them an intro to comics, maybe an intro to planet Earth at the same time, Diane Obamsawin. Do you know who I'm speaking about? She's Quebecois. No, I don't think so. Do you know if she's been published in English? Yes, John and Quarterly published her most recent book. Uh, right, okay, yeah. She's mostly known as a screenwriter, but her most recent book was in English, and it's called Unloving Women. Oh, I have heard of that book. Yeah, so it originally came out in French. Um, she's francophone herself. And what is it oh, about her so work that, uh, that you think would serve um, as an introduction to the, the human so, species? Uh, so if I had to introduce... A comic to aliens. I think I would go with On Loving Women, um, partially because I'm biased and the content, you know, would show the aliens some some les like lesbian stuff from a lesbian perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I thought of her first actually because of her style, the way that she draws um, is to me like so universal. She draws these humanoid animals, but not in a goofy way, um, in a way that like somehow their animalness just like lens to how emotive they are um and uh and it, her line her line drawings are really simple and super clear so i feel like if i had never read comics and if i was an alien and looking at that i would understand oh these lines are supposed to be one of these humans here mm-hmm. you know and then at the same time they would probably pick up uh, some interesting things about some subcultures you know sure <laughs> well we've reached the end of the list thank you so much for talking to me megs yeah, thanks so much, Greg. I'm glad that we've got a chance to do this. Is there anything on the horizon coming out this year uh, that readers should look out for from you? Not this year. I am working on my big next thing, and that's going to take me a while yet. Um, if people want to donate to my Patreon to help me make that thing, that would be awesome. Um, and, yeah, I've got I've got a big thing coming out soon that's comics-related, but I can't announce it until uh, April 28th, I believe. Okay. So, well, watch yeah, no. watch this space, listeners. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not a comic, but it's a very big comics-related thing. So, anyway, well, that's all I can say about that. Cool. Well, thank you again for making the time. Yeah, thanks so much.